Look with me to the 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26, and I'll read down to verse 30. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, these are the words of God. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is, the blood, is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. As we approach these verses, there is an unmistakable heaviness in the air. At the beginning of this week, this is what we know as the Passion Week of Christ, the last week of His earthly life, so to speak. The beginning of this week, Jesus returned to Jerusalem, what is known as the triumphal entry, uh, to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And when He arrived at the temple, He found it full of money changers. And He begun overturning the tables and driving out extortioners cleansing the temple. And then he went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives where he gave the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He then sends Peter and John ahead to prepare the upper room for the celebration of the Passover. And at that point, this week takes a very drastic turn as Christ begins to tell his disciples that he will soon be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He will then be arrested. He will be taken away outside of the city to be crucified. He will be tortured, mocked, beaten, and ultimately he will give his life. As we approach the text that is before us, Jesus is assembled in this upper room with his disciples. And they are about to observe the feast of Passover. However, in verse 26 of Matthew 26, the trajectory of redemptive history would be changed forever. Something grand and glorious was about to be inaugurated by Christ in this upper room. It would be world-altering as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which signifies the ratification of, of the new covenant. Now it is also important for us to know that by the time we get to verse 26, John's gospel corroborates this for us. Judas Iscariot was no longer present. He had already departed. Christ is in this text observing the Passover with his 11 true disciples. Now in the past few weeks we have considered both a theological and a practical look at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But now, this morning, I have another objective as I proclaim this text. And that is to magnify the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel is displayed in the Lord's Supper. For the remainder of our time together, may we focus solely upon our wondrous Savior, Jesus Christ. 
A number of things I want you to see from this text. The first coming in verse 26 and verse 27. I want you to see the celebration of redemption. The celebration of redemption. This was the purpose of the Passover feast. It was a feast wherein Israel commemorated God's deliverance from the yoke of Egyptian bondage. It was a celebratory event. It was a wonderful occasion. It was not a gloomy time. The meal was symbolic of this great act of the Exodus. And the Passover, when God sent the angel of death over the land of Israel, but he passed over his people who had sprinkled the blood upon the doorpost, who had painted the blood upon the doorpost. And in homes all throughout Israel on this very night, families would have been observing this feast. It was not just something Christ and his disciples were doing, but families all throughout Israel would have been observing this feast. They would have had the unleavened bread prepared, They would have had the lamb prepared with bitter herbs and spices. They would have had the wine separated into the four distinct cups of the Passover. There was a cup of sanctification, which symbolizes our holy separation that God has wrought about within us. There is a cup of judgment and deliverance, which symbolizes God differentiating the the world, the sinful world from his people as he executes judgment on one and gives grace to the other. There was the cup of redemption, which of course signifies our passage from death to life, our passage from condemnation to justification, our, our passage from guiltiness to holiness and righteousness. And then there was the cup of consummation, which signified the completion of God's purpose of redemption, the completion of God's plan to save a people for His own name. These four cups would have been laid out as the disciples came to partake of this feast. And so we should not find it odd when we see their observance in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says in verse 26, the Bible says, as they were eating, so they're, they're having this meal, Everything is normal. Everything is as they would have been doing it for the last thousand years. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and break it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat. And then he took the wine and he gave thanks. And he said, drink ye all of it. This is how the Passover would have ordinarily been celebrated. The, the bread was blessed and broken and it was distributed amongst the group. The, the cup was given thanks for and passed around until it was consumed. And the Israelites did this year after year. But, but you see, friend, that's just it. They did it year after year, year after year, year after year. Redemption under the Old Covenant was pictured through shadowy figures. And the blood of bulls and goats and all of the sacrifices on that altar only pointed towards a coming ultimate sacrifice. Year after year, year after year, anticipation building, year after year. The Passover was a celebration of a temporal and physical deliverance from Egypt. But it was not final. It was not eternal. The Passover commemorated a salvation from Egyptian bondage, but not necessarily a salvation from the bondage of sin and the cataclysmic wrath of God. 
one could have been saved from Egypt, but not saved from sin and death. No, as joyous as the celebration of the Passover was, it did not provide that final satisfaction for the people of God. It did not signify that their redemption was fully accomplished. In fact, it signified the opposite. Uh, The Passover, with all of the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament, pointed forward to the need of a penultimate sacrifice that would bring irrevocable salvation to the people of God. This final sacrifice would put to end the Old Testament ceremonial system. God's people would no longer have need of types and shadows because they would have the substance of their redemption. And so every year as the Israelites celebrated the Passover feast, they were thankful for what God had done in the past. There was also an unavoidable longing in their hearts for the coming of the true Lamb of God that would take away sin once and for all. One who would come not only to free them from Egyptian bondage, but would come to free them from condemnation. Thus far, this celebration of the Passover seemed like all the rest. But Jesus will go on to say something that is positively remarkable. He will make a statement that signifies the coming of the full redemption that God's people so desired. Imagine the elation in their hearts as the disciples realized that this was the last Passover that they would ever need to partake of. Because their Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, had come to complete the redemptive plan of God. We've seen the celebration of redemption, but I want you to look secondly at the completion of redemption. The completion of redemption. We observe the completion of the redemption, not in the elements, but in what they represent. Now, up until this point, everything was entirely normal. Jesus says, take eat, take drink, but but notice what he says. Notice this astonishing claim that he makes. He says, take eat. This is my body. Take drink. This is the blood of the New Testament. This is my blood. My body and my blood. Now, we on this side of the cross, on this side of 2,020 years of Christian history, we struggle to understand just how shocking this would have been to a first century Passover observing Jew. Why? Because what, is, what it would have been normal to us was jaw-dropping to them. Jaw-dropping to them. Place yourself in this upper room. Uh, Try to imagine what what must have gone through the minds of the disciples as they heard these words. Here in this room sat 12 Israelites partaking of a ceremonial feast that their people had partaken of for 1,200 years. 1,200 years. They knew that this unleavened bread... If you asked any Israelite, what does the bread symbolize? They would say, well, this symbolizes... Our separation by God and to to a a holy people, our our, uh, freedom from Egyptian bondage. That's what this symbolizes. If you held up the cup and you said, what does this cup of redemption symbolize? 
Well, well, that symbolizes the Paschal Lamb that was slain every year, that, that was painted on the doorposts. That's what it means. That's what it's meant for the last 1,200 years. But yet they also would know that those elements pointed to a great act of God in the past, yes, but also that there was a sense of fulfillment yet to be experienced. Because what else did the Israelites know? What else were they taught? They were taught that one day God would send His Messiah and and this Messiah would come and secure their final salvation. This Messiah would come and deliver His people in a way that far outshone their deliverance from Egypt. He wouldn't just separate them temporally in the promised land. He would sanctify them together with Himself for all eternity. Christ was going to come and He was going to do something greater than Moses and greater than Abraham and greater than David. And so every year the people of Israel would observe the Passover with one eye on the exodus of 12,000 or 1,200 years ago, but another eye on the future, longing for the coming of the Messiah, wondering when God would send down the Holy One of Israel. And so when Jesus held up these elements, brothers and sisters, and says to the disciples, this represents me, this represents, points to me. He was emphatically declaring that God had sent the Messiah and that Messiah was Him. No longer would the people of Israel have to look back year after year to their deliverance from Egypt because a greater salvation had come. Imagine the elation that came upon the hearts of the disciples as Christ held up the bread and held up the wine. They they would have thought, no longer does this point back to an insufficient salvation that we must repeat and perform time and time again. But now Christ says, this is a picture of me. I am your perfect Savior. I am the one who has come once and for all to redeem you unto God. Imagine the full anticipation as the disciples realized that Christ is the true Paschal Lamb, that soon Christ would go to be a sacrifice for His people and that everlasting redemption would be given to all those who had His blood applied to their hearts through faith. This was the last Passover that the Israelites would ever need to partake of. To go back to commemorate Egyptian deliverance is to return to the shadows the substance of their faith, the the climax of their hope, the culmination of their religion, it, it had finally come. It was right before them. And from this point forward to where we are today, every true believer, for you, Christ, and Christ alone are to be the sole object of your praise and your adoration. No more animals would need to be sacrificed No more ceremonies need to be performed. Christ has come to satisfy the justice of God and to secure His grace to all those who had come to Him by faith once for all. So these words, though commonplace to us, we hear them. We've heard them before. Take eat. This is my body. This is my blood. They would have been monumental to these 11 men who heard them for the very first time. 
Now, we cannot fully examine the completion of our redemption from this text without considering and giving special attention to the statement that Christ makes. Verse 28. Notice what he says in verse 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now there's a number of things here we need to consider. The first is that the blood of Christ is uniquely tied to the new covenant. Blood and covenants were something that have long gone together in biblical history. The covenants with Noah and Abraham were ratified with blood. The Mosaic covenant was confirmed when Moses sprinkled the blood on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. This is the covenantal pattern throughout all of the Bible. Because of our sinfulness, we are not able to enter into a covenantal relationship with a holy God apart from the blood of another to cover our transgressions. And so we see this pattern all throughout the Old Covenant. God enters into a covenant with His people. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. And what happens? An animal is slaughtered and blood is shed to cover the sins of His people so that they might enter into a relationship with God. Well, there was another covenant promised in the Old Testament. We see it first appearing in Genesis 3.15, but we see it developing all throughout the Old Testament. Perhaps we see it most clearly announced in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Now there's another issue with the covenants of old. They they were broken and they never fully accomplished anything they were intended to do. Which covenant they break, although I wasn't husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This was to be the fullest revelation of God's gracious covenant that He made with His people. And all of the biblical covenants were revelations of this grace, but none of them were complete. None of them promised a full and finished rest for the souls of men. Ah, but this new covenant that would be inaugurated by Christ, it would bring about the grace of God towards His people in its greatest expression. There are no conditions of obedience for men to perform. There are no animal sacrifices that must be offered. There are no works whereby we merit this grace. No, the salvation that is guaranteed in this covenant of grace, which is communicated to us in the new covenant, is based entirely on what Christ has done 
and the efficacious work of God's grace upon our hearts. And Christ has secured this new and better covenant with His own blood. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if you desire to experience the grace of Christ in the new covenant, you must only receive Him and His blood shed for you. That is what Christ came to say. That that is what He was announcing to His disciples here. Uh, You can worship Me through song. uh, You can worship Me through through, uh, ordinances. But you cannot receive My favor. You cannot receive a right relationship with God apart from what I am going to do on the cross in a few days. No amount of religiosity. No amount of good works. No amount of money. No amount of anything you provide on your behalf will ever get you there. God's grace in the new covenant is given exclusively through Christ. Exclusively through Christ. Notice also, if you would, that this blood is shed for many for the remission of sins. Shed for many for the remission of sins. Firstly, we see from this phrase that the blood of Christ is shed blood. It is shed blood. It is not spilled blood. It is shed. Shed denotes a deliberate and a violent death. His blood was not merely sprinkled. Uh, he, he, He did not merely bleed. His blood was shed to the point of death. Jesus' blood was shed as the Roman soldiers lacerated his back with the cat of nine tails. Jesus' blood was shed as the crown of thorns was pushed into his brow and his face was marred so much that he was unrecognizable. Jesus' blood was shed as spikes were driven through his hands and through his feet. Jesus' blood was shed as the spear pierced his side. Brothers and sisters, think of the condescension that our Lord underwent as He, holy and infinite God, became man. And not only did He become man, but He allowed other men to cause Him to bleed. And the point is not just that Jesus bled. The point is that Jesus died. He bled to the point of death. It is that He shed His blood until He had no more blood to shed. It is that He gave Himself until He had nothing left to give. It is that Christ Jesus gave all of Himself in His life and in His death to redeem a people to call His own. No sacrifice could compare to the work of Christ upon the cross. What what could we ever do as His people to return such a sacrifice? No amount of worship will ever add up. No amount of alms will ever equal. No amount of time ever spent will ever compare to what Christ has done for us. He shed His blood. He shed His blood. Secondly, we see, and I I want you to understand that we are making much out of these small words because big doors swing on small hinges. 
His blood was shed for many. His blood was shed for many. This denotes not the type of Christ's death, but the objects of Christ's death. Jesus' blood was not shed for the few, it was shed for the many. Young and old, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, Jesus' blood was shed for the good little church kid that was brought up on the front pew. Jesus' blood was shed for the pagan who had never so much as heard his name. Jesus' blood was shed for the sexual deviant. Jesus' blood was shed for the liar. Jesus' blood was shed for the drug addict. Jesus' blood was shed for the thief. Jesus' blood was shed for the vilest of the vile. Jesus' blood was shed for the chiefest of sinners. Jesus' blood was shed for the hopeless. Jesus' blood was shed for the wretched. Jesus' blood was shed for the miserable. It was shed for many. In fact, as far as I can tell, there is only one category of people for which the blood of Christ was not shed. Jesus did not shed one drop of his blood for good and righteous people. So if you are here this morning and you believe that you are doing just fine, if you believe that you are good apart from Christ, that you have no need for the grace of God in your life, then I cannot say that Jesus' blood was shed for you. Because of all of the designations for whom Christ died, I cannot find from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 anywhere where Christ died for godly people. In fact, Paul says just the opposite in Romans, that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you see yourself a sinner, deserving of hell, hopeless before the throne of God, then I have marvelous news to declare unto you this morning. And that news is that Christ died for people just like you. That Jesus shed his blood, not for good people that had it all put together, not for people that had it all figured out, uh, not for people that knew all the answers, but Jesus died for the needy, for the feeble, for the broken. Do you see yourself as a sinner this morning? Do you see yourself as, as troubled this morning? Then let me say to you, there is room at the cross for you. There is room at Calvary for such a one as you. Because we believe that the precious blood of Christ shall never lose its power until all the ransomed of God be saved to sin no more. There is blood to cleanse you of your sins this morning. There is a fountain, and it is filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. Yes, the blood of Christ was shed for many for all those who would ever come to receive Him by faith. All of the Old Testament saints who looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah were saved by His blood. All of us in the New Testament who look back with faith are saved by this shed blood. Not a drop of it was shed in vain. Not an ounce of it was spilled for no purpose. It accomplished all that it was intended to do. 
The atonement of Christ, the death of Christ, was a definite transaction that secured the salvation of a purchased people. You ask, how do I know if I am included in this divine transaction? You say, I know that the blood of Christ was shed, and that it was shed for sinners, but how do I know that it was shed for me? That is a most important question to ask. And I say to you that you can answer that question by asking yourself, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Do you see Him as altogether lovely? Have you trusted Him by faith? Have you forsaken all hopes and ambitions of ever saving yourself and casting yourself at the foot of His cross? Are you trusting in Him alone for salvation? Or do you keep a stash of good works hidden away in the closet? whereby you secretly trust in them to make you accepted with God. It is very easy to profess to believe in justification by faith, but it is hard to practice it. Because the moment we begin to to have doubts about our standings with God, we far too often want to then look to ourselves, look to our own life, and then start parading before our consciences the supposedly good things we've been doing recently for assurance. What a miserable consideration that will be. No, the only answer to a struggled soul, troubled heart, is to look to the cross. To look to the cross. Can you sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Want to know if you are included in this divine transaction? Well, then ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, when the cross of Calvary is preached unto you, do you look at that and say, that is my Savior dying for me. That is my God shedding His blood that I might be saved. That is Christ loving me. And giving his life for me so that I could be redeemed. Or do you look upon that cross and think, what on earth is that? I don't understand what is going on here. I don't see its relevance in my life. I I, I don't see how how this Jew who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross has any bearing upon me. And you are far from God this morning if you think that. Because the centerpiece of Christianity is Calvary's cross and the Savior who died upon it. Do you have love for Christ? Do you have confidence in the power of His blood? Confidence in the power of His blood to do all that He said it will do. To save you from sin. uh, To guarantee you a standing before God. To redeem you from all iniquity. To triumph over the besetting sins that still live and rest in your own heart. Do you have this type of love for Christ? This faith in His death? And if you do, let me assure you that His blood is shed for you. But if you are able to go on in your love of sinning, persisting in the very things that Christ has died to cleanse you of, If you have no interest in the Savior, 
if he is not the object of your deepest affections, then I do not want to give you any false sense of assurance this morning. No, I want you to be all alone as you consider your heart, as you consider your relationship with God. Examine yourself. Consider your standing before Him. And if you have come to the realization, perhaps you've come to that realization this morning that you are lost and yet in your sins, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, run to Christ. Do not put it off. Do not think, I'll get right with God tomorrow. There might not be one. Seek Him while He may be found. As he stands, arms open wide, ready to receive you unto himself, with his blood shed for you, go unto the Savior. But thirdly, from this phrase, I want us to see that his blood was shed for many for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Uh, The word remission literally means the cancellation of a debt of a charge, or of a penalty. The cancellation, the absolution of a debt. Do you realize that your sins have placed you in a state of insurmountable debt owed to a holy God? You owed a debt so large that you could never pay it off in a million lifetimes. And left unaccounted for, that debt will eventually drag you to hell. But the glorious news is that God has done something miraculous so that sinners do not have to rectify with their own debts. What has God done? Well, God is just. So He has not just swept your sins under the rug. He has not just overlooked your sins or turned a blind eye to your sins. He has dealt with your sins in the person of Jesus Christ. On the cross... All the sins of all those who would ever believe upon Christ were given to Him, transferred to Him, imputed to Him. And He hung on that cross, personally innocent, yet really and truly guilty of all of our sins. He became a curse for us. The blood of Christ is so mighty and so efficacious that it paid the debt on behalf of those who believe in Christ. He paid that debt. The the debt that separated you from God. uh, The debt that kept you in bondage to sin and death. The debt that prevented you from knowing God and spending eternity with God. Christ paid that debt on the cross of Calvary. He did not die for His own sins. He had none. He died the sins of you and the sins of me. As the hymn writer put it, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, we live. Do you understand that in the gospel, one man's death made way for many men's and women's lives? We live because he died. And he died because we could not live apart from him. Apart from the cross, you have no hope of your sins ever being forgiven. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. There is no plan B. 
There is no payment plan. There, there, is no, there is no work system where you can work off and do community service. There's no time off for good behavior. There's one and only one plan divinely given by God to take care of the sins of His people. On that cross, believer, your sins were fully paid for. They were carried far, far away. Never to be brought up again. Because they have been dealt with in Christ. What gift of grace is this forgiveness of sins? If this was all God ever gave you, you would have enough to praise Him throughout all eternity. If He never did anything else for you, which... By the way, He's done many other things for you. But if He never did anything else for you, just to know your sins are forgiven, that you can pillow your head at night and point your toes towards the sky and know that you have peace with God in heaven, you'd have enough to praise God throughout all eternity. Consider the altars of the Old Testament. The millions of gallons of blood that were shed to stay the wrath of God only for a season. To cover sin, not to take them away. And as soon as one animal was slaughtered and consumed, that altar would cry out, more blood, more blood, more blood. Because those sins were merely covered, they were not taken away. Yet by the death of Christ, our redemption is completed. In the once offering of himself, Jesus has forever atoned for all the sins of all his people. And to that we can but say hallelujah to the Lamb of God. He has done it. He has done it. He has taken your sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west. He has paid the full price for them. He has suffered for them. And he has risen from the grave guaranteeing your justification. This is the completion of redemption. And it is pictured in the Lord's Supper as Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, take part in it. Take part in it. Then we see thirdly in this text, in verse 29, the consummation of redemption. The consummation of redemption. Jesus then says something that would have certainly not been in accordance with the Passover observance and Without some study, it's confusing even to us. Verse 29, But I say unto you, Jesus speaking, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you remember that I told you that in the observance of the Passover, there were four cups used. And it is understood that when Jesus said, this is my blood, the cup of the New Testament, drink ye all of it, he was then holding up that cup of redemption. But this cup, the fourth cup, the cup of consummation, of that cup, Jesus says, I will not partake of it today, but I will partake of it on that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What what is Jesus saying to us? What what do we learn of this? 
Well, we learn that redemption has been fully accomplished. It has been entirely completed. There is nothing left to be done to accomplish our redemption. But redemption has not yet been fully consummated. What do we mean by that? Well, there are still sinners yet to be saved. There are still individuals for whom Christ has died that have not yet come to know Him. And so His gospel will go forth in the application of redemption until all of His sheep are brought in and on that day they will then be all gathered. We will be all gathered with Christ forevermore. And redemption will be not only completed, but it will be consummated. And there in the kingdom of God, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be sitting around the table and Christ Himself will serve us the cup of consummation. That is a most glorious thought. To think that as sweet as our fellowship is with God now, as tender as our communion is, is as a church now, there's coming a day in which it will yet even be sweeter. It will yet even be greater. Christ shall have the price for which he died. It will be an inheritance of nations. And on that day, sin will have been defeated. The curse will have been removed. The struggle will be over. And we shall enter into eternal rest and celebration of the Lamb of God and our consummated redemption. That is the consummation of our redemption. But we need to close with verse 30 as we consider the consecration of our redemption. Each week we end our services with a hymn of consecration. One of the reasons we do this is because we see that was the custom of our Lord. It says in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Did you know that we have a fairly good idea of what song the disciples sung that evening? It is most likely that they sung Psalm 118, which would have been the last of the Hallel Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 118. I want you to see how they consecrated this picture of redemption. Psalm 118. The last of the Hillel Psalms, beginning at verse 22. Again, this was a song that the people of Israel had been singing for many, many centuries. And they sing this psalm together. In verse 22, they say, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Christ, who was rejected by the Pharisees, A Christ who was denied His proper appearance as Messiah, His proper recognition as the Savior of His people. They rejected Him, but He has become the head cornerstone. Verse 23, This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee. Send now thy prosperity. Verse 26. Blessed 
be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. As you're reading this, as we're reading this, put yourself in this upper room. The disciples had been singing this for centuries and centuries and centuries, and now they're singing and they're saying, there he is. There is the chief cornerstone. There is the salvation that God promised to send. There is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Verse 27. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Now watch this. Bind the sacrifice of cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Christ was bound on the cross of Calvary and sacrificed for his people. Do you think this had a whole new meaning to them that night? May this have a whole new meaning to us. May may, may we be more attuned to Christ. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. After our Lord celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, he dismissed in song. Consider that for a moment, would you? Our Lord is going to the cross to suffer and die. And he sings. He he praises. He worships. He glorifies. Why? Because he came for a purpose. And that purpose was to die to save his people. He was not afraid of the cross. He was anticipating the cross. He was looking forward to the cross. Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame and endured the cross. Christ approached the cross with song. How do you approach Christ? As he has preached unto you, is your heart caused to rejoice as our Lord was rejoicing that night? Does your love for him burst within you? Are you eager even to come to the Lord's table to commune with your Savior who bled and died for you? Have you no interest in Christ, brothers and sisters? If so, I fear greatly for the state of your soul. Hear the gospel preached unto you. A Savior has died. He has died for many for the remission of sins. He has died with the promise that all who come to Him in faith shall forevermore be redeemed. And He stands ready and able to receive you to Himself today. So the call to you is come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You in Christ's name for Your goodness to us. We see this picture, this fulfillment of what Christ has come to do in living and dying and giving his blood for us. Consecrate our hearts today for the believers here. May we relish once again in the truths of the gospel. And for those who yet do not know Christ, may you be pleased to use the word as it is preached to save and redeem your lost sheep. Father, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.